0: This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Lifeway hosted a track called How to Mature People Through Disciple Making. That's where we recorded the audio for today's episode. Daniel M. led this track for Lifeway's team, and one of the resources he mentions during this track is his new book, No Silver Bullets. We've worked with him to provide a sampler of this book, two chapters or so. So make sure to go online and download this free PDF sampler of Daniel's new book, No Silver Bullets, which is about five small shifts that will transform your ministry. Download this at discipleship.org lifeway. And just a heads up, we weren't able to capture all the audio when people ask questions. So bear with us as you hear presenters periodically respond without necessarily hearing the question at hand. And now for the track session.
1: All right. Hey, everyone. Hey, thanks for joining. It's, it's going to be hot. <laughs> and I think I feel I just had my physical and my entire life. I was like, I've been trying to get to six feet. And I was always 5'11". And then they said, I'm six feet. So then I was like, how does that work? I was like, do you grow in your 30s? And and then, so, she, you know, she asked me to take my shoes off. And I know I have my hair up like this. So she pushed my hair down. And she's like, no, you're six feet tall. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy. But with this podium, I feel like a midget. <laughs> like, it's just, I feel like it was made for a Dutchman. So... Uh, anyways, uh, it's great to be with you guys. We're going to talk about how to actually disciple toward maturity. Uh, if, um, I, I, mentioned some of the research, uh, on, you know, from the main stage, the whole confession thing, we'll get into that a little bit, uh, actually this, this session as well as the next one, uh, the, the, I think I'm doing the third or the fourth one in this track. Uh, but yeah, that's what this is about. Let me pray and we'll get started. Thank you, father, uh, that you are a good God. Uh, that you have allowed us to take a moment away from our ministries, a a moment away from our responsibilities uh, to soak, to learn, to grow, and uh, more than just getting uh, information that uh, tickles our curiosity, God, I pray that you would show us what to take away from this conference, from this session so that you are lifted up high, so that we see disciples making disciples, making disciples in our churches, so that you are lifted up high, glorified, and honored. So we give you thanks, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So <laughs> I love these two phrases here God is more concerned with your faithfulness than your fame, and ministry to the few is as important as ministry to the many. Now, these two phrases, if you were to tweet them out, share them on Facebook or, uh, you know, put them on a nice little photo on Instagram, I'm sure you're going to get plenty of likes and shares, but they actually represent two of my deepest ministry scars. So when I was a student pastor years ago, first starting out in ministry, I was, I mean, I had crafted literally this epic eight week sermon series. Like it was It was. It was like the way I felt about it was that it was going to be bounded in, you know, (laughs) leather-bounded volumes beside the Charles Haddon, you know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, uh, you know, sermons, as well as the, you know, beside the Matthew Henry commentary. Like every seminarian was going to have these eight sermons bounded. It was going to be that good. So, uh, come Sunday, I get there, and literally, there were. Uh, there was myself, there was my wife, there was one of our student leaders, and one student. Uh, I was like, and usually there was a few dozen that had come, but for some reason, he was the only person there. So this guy, Joel, he actually just, he, you know, he looked around and he was like, you know, he's a little bit awkward, you know, awkward teenager. And he was like, hey, how about, how about we just play pool today? Right. We had a pool table, you know, cool student ministry type of thing. So, you know, I was, I was kind of thinking about weighing the options. And in my head, I was like, well, if I if I start this message, I mean, all every, everyone's going to be one week behind. And it's not like we recorded them. It's not like you podcasted your sermons back then or anything like that. So I was like, you know what, you know, let's let's just skip it let's play pool. I grew up, my dad owned a billiard hall and I worked there all the time. So I was like, Hey, anytime I can play pool, uh, that's, that's always a good thing for me. So we actually played pool together. And I mean, that was that, that was it. That was it. Had a great time playing pool, went home, ate lunch. And do you ever have those, do you ever have that feeling? Uh, you know, when you, when you go grocery shopping and, you're, you're, you know, you're shopping for groceries and all of a sudden you have that kind of thought in the back of your head, did I lock my car? You know? And then you're just like, oh, you know, I always lock my car. You know, anytime I ever get those thoughts, it's, I, I I've always locked my car. So you just try to push it away, right? Because you, you already have stuff in your cart, right? You don't want to leave it and, and all the stuff. And you're already midway through the grocery store and you're just like, I don't want to, you know, I locked it. I locked it. But the more you shop the more anxious you become because you're like, actually, I really don't think I locked my car. So you know that feeling? That was the feeling I had that afternoon. It's kind of like maybe even that moment when you're laughing with your friends, you're joking around, and someone just takes the joke like one step too far. right? And it's just super awkward. So something was right. I didn't want to admit I just tried to ignore the feeling. But no matter what I did to suppress that feeling, it just didn't go away that afternoon. So I just took a deep breath and I was like, okay, God, I'll just, I'll just pray about Lord, what are you trying to say? If you're trying to say anything, because I really didn't know what to make of it. And in that moment, I sensed God saying that sermon you had worked so hard to prepare was actually for today and not for next week. It was not for the masses, but for the few. So what seemed like a common sense wise decision ended up being the wrong one because of my motives, right? I wanted to create momentum. I wanted to start the sermon series off with a bang. I I wanted things to be rolling. I didn't want people to play catch up in my, you know, I wanted my sermon to have as big of an impact as I felt it should have in my prayer and in my preparation. So that afternoon I repented to God. I was like, Lord, I'm sorry for my motives being more about my fame than being about faithful with the message that He had entrusted me with. And then I sensed God saying, "So you need to call up Simon, one of the leaders." And I was like, "Why, like God? This is between me and you, right? Like, why bring other people into this?" Uh, and I just, I couldn't shake it. So I just, I was like, "Okay, whatever." So uh, even if I'm wrong, it doesn't hurt to call him up anyway, right? Even if this is just me, even if I'm not hearing God, even if this is not the Holy Spirit, you know, at least I can call we can talk, it'll be fine. You know, what's the worst that can happen? So I call him up and I start hearing what's going on in his life. And I basically end up preaching the message that I had planned that morning to him because that message was actually for him. And that's when I discovered that ministry to the few is as important as ministry to the many. From that day forward, I I, I promised that I would try to be faithful regardless of the size or perceived impact that any ministry opportunity had. Like whether it was 10 people or 1,000 or 10,000, I was like, okay, Lord, no matter what, I'm going to bring my A game all the time. Because instead of seeing every opportunity as a blessing from the Lord... What I was actually doing subtly in my heart was I was judging effectiveness by attendance. My metrics were totally off. And that experience, as minor as it may seem, was actually foundationally influential in shifting my perspective on success, on shifting my perspective on what effectiveness in ministry looks like. So let me ask you a question here. What does a disciple look like? Right? What does success look like as it relates to discipleship? Now, how many of you are married here? All right, so the majority are married. And uh, if, if you think back to, uh, if you're married, if you think back to that moment when you were dating your, uh, your, your future spouse, and you're trying to figure out if they were going to be, you know, if that was the person you're supposed to marry or if it was someone else or this or that. And you would go to the people that you trust and you're like, how do I know if this person is the one? What was the, what's that common piece of advice that people give? You just, yeah, you just know, right? It's like, really, it's like you just know when you know. And you think about it and you're like, that doesn't actually logically make sense. Because how do you know, how are you supposed to know when you've never known right so to so i was like I, I that's not helpful and then i got married and then other people started asking me and i was like you know you're right you just do kind of know and and i feel like the way we react in that way is often the way that we view maturity in regards to discipleship right you just how, how, you know take the roster in your church. Maybe you have a church directory, right? Or maybe, you know, you're going on your church's Facebook page and you're looking at all the people and you're like, you could probably pick out all the mature people in your church. But did you win them to Christ? Now, if you didn't win them to Christ, were you a part of them becoming mature? Or were they transfer growth? And you know what happens when that family comes and they're mature disciples, you know, all the staff members, you know, you you all kind of like, like you're a hawk, uh, or like vultures. Actually, we all kind of, you know, go down and we try to take them for our ministries, right? Right. I mean, how many people in our churches? How many of the mature people in our churches are there, and they're mature not because of what you did, right? And then and, and you look and you're like, well, how do you know someone's mature? Well, well, dear Sister Sally, I mean, she, she's always at all our programs, right? Or, or, or Marvin, right? He's, he's, he's a faithful deacon or he's an elder and he's serving and he's doing this. And, but, they, you know, what's the process to get them there? Now, so what is a disciple, right? What does success look like? How do you know you make one and how do you know when you've succeeded? And I want to explain this uh, by talking about dieting. Because right? when we think about dieting, uh, a lot of times the, the way that we try to lose weight is actually the way that we try to disciple. And there's not just one way to lose weight. Right? The word goal, like I have a goal to lose weight, is it, the word goal is not a unilateral, one-dimensional term. Like a goal is Every goal is not a goal. There are different types of goals. Right? There are output goals and there are input goals. So, when you think about dieting, actually, these four ways that we diet or we try to diet are actually the four ways that we disciple. And I'd love for you, as I articulate these four ways that we diet, to try to see what the connections are to the way that maybe you try to measure what success looks like as it relates to discipleship and what you are most akin to. All right, so the first one is the first way that we try to lose weight is we just you know, we come out of the shower, we look at ourselves in the mirror, and we're just like, I got to lose some weight, right? And I know in a couple weeks, like after th- when Thanksgiving, you know, the morning after Thanksgiving, right? Black Friday, a lot of us are going to look in the mirror, and we're going to be like, I shouldn't have eaten that extra piece of pumpkin pie, right? But you really should have, right? Because it's just so good, <laughs> All right? But, I mean, we have, that, we have those days. You know, you just wake up, and you're like, I just got to lose weight. So what do you do? On Black Friday when you've eaten way too much on Thanksgiving Day and you're like, I just got to lose weight. You eat salad for lunch, right? Right. I mean, that's right. Cause if you, that's what I was told, right. You just got to eat salad. And if you eat, if you eat enough salad eventually things will balance itself out. So I tried this one time and I, uh, and then I, I was so proud of myself, so proud of myself that I went home and I told my wife, Christina, I was like, Hey, I ate salad for lunch. And she, she didn't smile. She, so she, she just kind of asked questions. She was like, so what kind of salad did you have? And I was like, a Cobb salad, right? Because I want bacon. I want eggs. I want like all that stuff in there, right? And then I don't want to taste what lettuce tastes like. Right? I just I want to eat all the other stuff. And so she's like, oh, really? Okay. And how much dressing did you use? And I'm like, oh, well, I used the whole package, right? Why? I don't want to waste you know, dressing, <laughs> and then she was like, you know, it actually would have been, it would have been less calories for you to eat the burger than the salad, right, and I feel like that's how a lot, I mean, how many of you have died in that way, you know, you just try to eat salad, so what do you do when you eat salad, you know, you eat salad for lunch, and then when it's dinner time, and everyone's eating ribs, like, who's here from, who's, who's from the area here, all right, so there are a ton of good barbecue restaurants, and I'm Canadian, I mean, I, before moving down to Nashville three years ago with my wife and three kids, uh, I thought barbecue was like burgers and hot dogs. But I was quickly, you know, corrected that that is called grilling. And I could not use the word barbecue for that. Uh, so I'm continuing to discover, you know, you know, barbecue here and Memphis dry rub and, you know, like South Carolina bar, you know, Alabama. Bar. So I, I'm learning and I, and I love it. Right? But if you eat salad for lunch, it means you can eat ribs for dinner, right? <laughs> and then when you wake up in the morning, you skip breakfast and you eat another salad for lunch. Right? I feel like a lot of times that's how we try to lose weight. Right? We just we just say I right, gotta lose weight. Okay, so that's the first way. The second way is we have a clear output goal. So you're like, hey, you know, I need to lose ten pounds in two months. Right? And you have a clear goal. So every morning you wake up and you step on the scale, and you see if you've lost weight. You know, you go about your day the way that you go about, but every single morning, you wake up and you step on the scale, and you're like, have I lost weight yet? So you have a clear output goal, right? The result that you want, but there's not necessarily an intentional plan to get there. So the third way to lose weight is you actually move from an output goal to an input goal, right? So an input goal are, I mean, these are things that you can do today that are going to lead to the results that you want tomorrow, right? So input goals are the levers that you could, they're the things that you can actually do, right? They're, they're, they're doable things. So for example, if you want to lose weight and you are moving from an output goal to an input goal, you're, you're going to, you know, download an app called my fitness pal or you're going to get a you know a fitbit or an apple watch or a smartwatch or whatever you know to track your steps you know so that you get enough steps in and you're 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 moving and you're lo- and every time you eat something you put it in your tracker and you and you monitor your calorie intake right and you're like if i exercise enough if i do enough things that i can control then i should lose weight right but if any of you have ever worked out really hard I mean, what do you want to do after you work out really hard? Eat, right? And what do you, how much do you want to eat? <laughs> A lot, right? And you're like, oh, I lost 400 calories. You know, that's, that's fine. I can have this smoothie, right? And I can have this, you know, quesadilla and I can eat this. And so what happens is if, if all you're doing is measuring your goal based on the things that you do, you can actually gain weight. Your heart will be healthier, but you're not getting to your goal. So the last way that we try to lose weight is we combine input and output goals. So there are a lot of calculators online where you can do this and you're like, hey, okay, what's, what's my weight? Uh, 10 pounds in 60 days. Uh, here's my age and it'll show, You know, okay, then on an average daily basis, you should intake 1,700 calories, right? And it's different for everyone. So what you do is the exercise that you do, the food that you eat, you just make sure that you net 1,700 every single day. Right. You can eat twenty five hundred worth. Of, I mean, you could eat a Chick-fil-A supersized, you know, a burger, uh, you know, not I guess it's not bur- you know, chicken burger, you know, the deluxe one uh, with like, you know, extra fry, you know, the waffle fries because it's just so good. Uh, and then you can have like a supersized, you know, Coke, you know, the real Coke, not the diet Coke. You could do that and you can eat twelve hundred calories. That's fine. Right. That's fine. But as long as you net 1,700 every single day, you are going to net losing 10 pounds in two months. Now, your heart may not be healthy if you do that. But if your goal is losing 10 pounds, then you can get there by combining inputs and outputs. So think about it like this. Because churches tend to measure discipleship in the same four ways that we approach dieting. I mean, how many times, like our first example... Do we try to disciple? We're just like, we got. You know, we go to a conference like this and we're like, we are a disciple. Uh, we need to be disciple makers, right? Yes. And I mean, I want Robert Coleman, Dr. Robert Coleman to pray for me every single day, right? I want to wake up to that prayer that he just prayed. I mean, that's like, I mean, how can you not be energized after hearing the guy pray like that? Right? And you're like, yes, okay, I get it. I need to be a disciple maker. And then we go home. And we just do whatever we do the way that we've been doing it. And we hope that inspiration is enough, right? But we know inspiration is not enough, right? We know that. A great sermon is not going to lead to a revolution of disciple-making disciples in your church. It will inspire. It might motivate, but it's not going to lead to that necessarily. Now, that's the first way. Remember that second way where it's like output goals and, you know, every morning you step on a scale and you're like, did I lose weight? Most churches in America, that's what they do every single Sunday. Sunday happens, and they step on the scale, and they're like, hey, what was our attendance and our giving? Oh, great. And then you do what you do, and then next week, you step on the scale again, and you're like, what was our attendance and our giving? We grew by 10%? Great. How? Well, I don't know. I mean... Maybe the church down the road shut down, or uh, you, like you have no idea, right? But you're like, oh great, hallelujah! You have a, you have a fan, you feel so good, and then the next week you come back and you step on the scale, right? I mean, how often do we measure success by re, in in reaction via the output goals? We don't necessarily know what we're doing if we're doing anything to lead to that. Now, here's the thing: if you live in a community where growth, where where the where the population is increasing, right? That is actually one, according to a a leadership network research project, one of the most common similarities amongst growing churches are that they live in growing communities. So you really have to be royally messing things up. If you are in a growing community that's growing by 20% every year and you are not growing. Now you don't need to be growing by 20%. But if you're not even growing by 5%, it's like, okay, but the whole population is growing. There's something that you need to address. Now, here's the thing. If you live in a community, if you're pastoring in a community where, you know, it's the brain drain, right? And, and you know, ten- it's, it's, it's decreasing, shrinking by 10% every year because high school graduates are all leaving or people who used to have, a- I mean, they got to leave to find work. Then if you are staying like at 0% growth, you are actually growing. You see how metrics work that way? Right? So we have to always consider the context. We can't be, you know, comparing ourselves with that church or this church or that church. But when we view discipleship maturity, when we view success in our churches based on this pure outputs of, hey, I mean, I heard this one person say that if you're not growing by 10% every year, then you're not really doing an effective thing. And I mean, you can't take that and just unilaterally put that on yourself, regardless of your context and your community, right? So that's the second way, and one of the most common ways that we do, right? So we measure, you know, attendance or you know, Sunday school attendance, uh, we're you know, giving, serving, all that stuff. Now, it's having output goals, having at least identifying metrics is better than not having any metrics at all, right? But it's not sufficient because you could have someone that's coming every week serving and in a small group and they can be a pharisee (laughs) right they can be a pagan but they got it religiously down right now they are i mean those who are mature do those things but there's not necessarily there's not it's not necessarily you know apples to apples are so if you think about it like that output goals right and this is an important thing to take away here output goals in and of themselves don't actually move people towards christ Output goals are the result of input goals. So if all you do is focus on output goals and let everyone choose their own input goals, you might get maturity, but there's no way to reproduce that. So making the micro shift uh, from output goals to input goals is the first step to figuring out how to actually move people towards Christ and disciple them. So instead of just measuring the number of disciples that you have... This way of maturity is actually saying, okay, yes, I need to know, I want to know how many disciples I have, but you would actually look at what do I need to influence them in? What are the input goals that I need to do? And then you measure whether or not they produce disciples, right? So you would focus on the things that you can do today that will produce the disciples that you want tomorrow. Now, before I go on, I need to address something because I know there are a few here who are probably like, you know, what the heck is he talking about? Because, I mean, you can't, are you, are you saying that all you got to do is pull these levers? And, you know, and making disciples are like widgets. You just got to have the right form and the mold and the right program. And as long as you do these things, then you're going to get maturity. No, right. It's not right. I mean, we know 1 Corinthians 3, the difference between faithfulness and fruitfulness. And, but we need to plant. We need to water. Right. But the Lord is the one that ultimately gives the growth. Right. So I love, I mean, Richard Foster in his book, I mean, he's most known for his book, Celebration of Disciplines. Uh, you may not agree fully with everything that he talks about, but it is a in very influential book out there. There's another book he wrote uh, where he dug deeper into prayer. Right? It was actually called Prayer. Uh, and, and there's an illustration in the first part of the book where he says, hey, spiritual growth. And I love this. Spiritual growth is kind of like sleeping. You can't force yourself to sleep, right? I mean, you know this, right? You can't, I mean, you could, like, you can't just say, hey, Daniel, sleep. Like right now, put your head on the pillow, sleep, right? It doesn't work like that. But what you can do is you can create the conditions in which sleep will come. Right? So I know if I want to take a nap or if, you know, because I travel for, you know, doing things like this and I'm like, okay, if I'm in a hotel room, there are things that I need to do to set up the room and, you know, because I know, I mean, that's just going to help me prepare, I mean, it's going to prepare myself for sleeping, but ultimately I can't make myself sleep. Well, it's the same thing with spiritual growth. We can create the conditions in which spiritual growth will come, there are are inputs, there are things that we can do that we know that when we do it, and I'll share from the research what those things are, that it will result in spiritual growth, but ultimately the growth is a result, It's, it's, it's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. Right? So I just wanted to you know put that caveat out there. We are going to go hyper practical into unpacking the research, some of the stuff that I shared from the stage right and talk about the inputs and the outputs and, and you know I want, I want us to understand that hey outputs are the, they're the fruit that we want to see in our life they're the fruit they're that maturity that we want in our life in our life and in those that we disciple and yes, there are things that we can do that are going to result and there's a high level of correlation, but it's not that if you do this, you are automatically going to get this because it's really a result of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Are we, are we all good? No one's going to you know, get angry at me for being so like, because uh, please don't call me pragmatic is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. So here we go. Uh, in 2011, Lifeway Research embarked on their second in-depth study to examine the state of discipleship in the church. How many of you are familiar with the Transformational Discipleship Assessment? Okay, great. There's a book called Transformational Discipleship. Eric Geiger, uh, Philip Nation, and Michael Kelly wrote it. They're, uh, you know, from Lifeway. And, and they really unpack the research in that. And this, just really quickly, this research project was actually built, I mean, this research project has three phases, three phases, right? Expert interviews with guys like 28 global experts like Dr. Robert Coleman, guys like him, you know, who are very influential thinkers and also practitioners and then on top after that there a thousand Protestant pastors in Canada and the US that were surveyed and after that there were 4,000 lady that were surveyed okay that's the transformational discipleship project so that's a lot of random sampling and and really good data and the survey was done in multiple languages as well okay that was actually built on a study that Brad Wagner did on 2,500 Protestants year over year. So it was a longitudinal one where he looked at the you know, maturity and some of these factors. So it's two studies, two massive research projects that came up with these eight attributes. Right? Now these eight attributes, uh, these uh, you know, faithfulness, so these eight attributes here, I mean you could Write them down. I mean, you could just Google Lifeway Transformational Discipleship Assessment or Lifeway TDA. And you'll, I mean, there's a ton written on this. There's that book on it as well. But essentially, these attributes reveal the the research revealed that maturity. Remember that thing? It's like, how do you know when you've met the one? Well, you just know when you know. And you know that question we have how do you know if someone's mature? Well, some people say, well, it's evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, or you're like, well, I mean, if you're, if you're in Christ, you're going to be evangelizing, right? We have all kind of our, you know, little metrics and stuff that we use to identify what maturity is. But what this research project I articulated and discovered was that that obscure, that obscure word maturity, you know, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, what that looks like in an individual that is actually articulated by these eight attributes. So these eight output goals, right, these are results that we get. That, you know, if you're saying, hey, what does it look like to develop someone who is mature in Christ? Well, you'd say, well, they would have evidence of these eight attributes in varying levels and varying forms, right? And actually, uh, there's a, if I look at the track here, right, and the way we did this was I'm talking about all this. I'm kind of setting it all up. And then the second one, if I... Hopefully this works here. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> but the second one, if you look at the, anyone have it out, the tracks? Yeah. Scott McConnell's going after, right? Yeah, so breakout two. So at four o'clock today, so right after here, uh, Scott McConnell is going to unpack these eight attributes and go deeper into the research. Right? So I'm not, I'm not really going to talk about these eight attributes anymore because he's actually going to go a lot deeper into that. Uh, and then breakout three, which is tomorrow morning, Matt Morris is going to be talking about a progressive relational discipline and repl- replicable path for a disciple, for an individual. Right? So you're going from big research, you know, articulating it a little bit deeper, and then tomorrow morning, Matt's going to talk about the individual disciple, the person. And then breakout four. I'm going to come back and say, okay, how do you now create a discipleship pathway for your church, right? How do you actually kind of bring these things together and say, okay, um, uh, you may be a great discipler, but how do you make it where you are not the only discipler, right? And where the goal, because and I'll and I'll share this in breakout four, where the goal for your church. It's not what you offer, because a lot of times we think a discipleship pathway as these are the sets, you know, this is a set of classes that we're offering, or this is what we can do for you. But the goal for a discipleship pathway is actually uh, developing self-feeders, developing people who own. So how do you actually develop a discipleship pathway where people can own, where they can own it themselves, right? That's what I'll be talking about in breakout four, and then breakout five, Matt's going to come back, and man, I mean, he has so much experience with technology and discipleship, and he's going to be talking about some of the connections there and what that looks like, right? So that's just a quick, you know, what what's coming up here. So I'm not going to be talking any more about that, but what I did want to, the reason I wanted to bring it up here was because there's actually, I mean, these are the eight output goals, right? And in that book, Transformational Discipleship, I mean, that book talked about these eight attributes. Now, here's the interesting thing. When I was pastoring, and I I mean, I serve as a teaching pastor at my church here in Nashville. Actually, we have two campuses. It's called the Fellowship. Uh, We have one in uh, Donaldson and another one in Mount Juliet. So I'm full-time at Lifeway, uh, leading church multiplication with newchurches.com, with Lifeway Leadership. But I'm, I mean, I'm a pastor. I mean, that's God's call on my life. So I serve as a teaching pastor and I preach about every other week at my church, right? So, but, but before I moved down here three years ago, I was, I was like, I love this, right? And there's a survey like tda.lifeway.com. You can actually do a congregational survey and see where everyone in your, you know, where your congregation is at in regards to these eight attributes. So as a pastor, before I came down to Lifeway, before any of that, I, lo- you know, I took the book, I was like, okay, how do, I, how do I help my congregation live this out? And let's be honest here, right? Even if I had like a, a beautiful looking card, right? Like let's say this, you know, even if I did like an eight week sermon series and printed out these eight attributes on a really nice looking card that people might put in their wallet, as right? you fold it up or whatever, right? Even if I did that, right? Even if I did that, would people remember eight things? No. I mean, I don't, I couldn't even say all eight without missing at least one. And I've presented all this over and over and over. And I was like, well, why isn't there like an acronym? And someone said, there is. It's Bosses, Bosses BB. And I'm like, that's not really a good, like, how do you know you're a disciple? Bosses BB. I was like, (laughs) it just doesn't make sense, right? So, I mean, even if that were the case, I was like, it's just, it's just complicated. So. I made some assumptions and I was like, okay, well, you know, there must be, you know, there's, there's something called the 80-20 rule. You know, that the Pareto Principle or vital behaviors or keystone habits. I mean, we, we know that, that, that 80% of the work that's being done in our congregation is typically by 20% of the people. And, you know, we're always the faithful few that are going to be everywhere, you know, all, every event we do. So we know that and there's research that backs society of the 80 So I was like, does it exist there? I didn't know. Anyways, I moved down to Nashville and I started working on this Uh, and everything that I'm talking about here comes out of my book, uh, No Silver Bullets. So if you want to learn more about this research and how do you actually implement and move it out, that's... The website where you can learn a little bit more about it. The reason I share the website with you is because I actually, it's like, hey, if you as a staff want to bring your team through it, and I've done this multiple times, it's like, hey, buy a copy for your staff and let's, you know, we'll do a Skype call or we'll do a phone call and I'll help you uh, just path, you know, I guess map out a path for you to implement it. But they are selling the book in the bookstore but what i wanted to the reason i shared this with you is cuz when i was working on this book i actually i was like hey i work at lifeway now and i can walk down and like knock on the lifeway on lifeway research's door so i did and i was like hey guys can i ask you a question here i love the research I, you know, we, we did this discipleship pathway and I'm trying to figure out if the 80, 20 rule works here because in the book and in all the research, everything I can find online, all you guys talk about is, um, all you guys talk about is, are these eight things, right? And I was just like, it's not, I you know, I don't get it. Right. How do you make it simple? Right. How do I make it simple? And then they looked at me and they were like, oh yeah, uh, there is something like that. It's called regression analysis. And, you know, like, there's sometimes people say things to you and you don't want to look like an idiot. So you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, regression analysis. But just so that I know that you know what you're talking about, why don't you tell me what regression analysis is? Right? And I'm like, I'm no doctor here. I'm no statistician here. I mean, I love preaching the word of God. I love pastoring. I love, I mean, that's my call. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means. I love the research. I love this, but I I just don't know how to make it practical. Because if I take this survey, what this is basically going to be is it's going to be me stepping on the scale and measuring maturity based on outputs. Now that's great, right? It's good if you don't, if you're not doing any sort of congregational survey like this one, I mean, do it because it really gives you, I mean, otherwise you're just anecdotally trying to discern where everyone's at in your church. Right? So, I mean, a survey like this is very helpful, but still I was like, OK, but it's not actually it's helpful, but it's not actionable. So we started talking and they were like, yeah, yeah. so there is this idea of the you know, there's this connection, you know, regression analysis basically showed, hey, there are things that you can do that are going to result in the maturity that you see here. So what I shared from the stage, you know, the whole idea of confessing your sins, Do you remember? was everyone here for that? Yeah, okay, so I won't go into that. So the whole idea of confessing your sins, I mean, that was one of the examples, right? Where it's like, hey, if you want to see, see someone have more of this, sharing Christ. Oh, I have a laser pointer, right? It doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> right, if you want to see someone grow in sharing Christ, right? The, con- the beauty of the regression analysis is like, if you want to see this output goal of sharing Christ increase in your life, Right And you want people to actually do the work of an evangelist, then to get people to share Christ, the input is not telling people to share Christ because it doesn't work. the input is confessing your sins. so what what I articulate in my I mean so they generously gave me their research and and that's what I unpack in my book and and I, I'm not going to bore you with it, uh, but in one of the chapters, I actually have five to six input goals that relate to every single one of these eight output goals right so here's an example let's say you're discipling someone and they're having a really hard time building relationships right maybe they were cheated on right or maybe their trust was broken over and over again and i mean there you know there's there's a reason i mean there's the fact that they've even opened up to you is a miracle but it took you like five years to grow that trust but they're not doing that with anyone else you know, you know those kind of people? So they're like, you want to help them grow in their ability to build relationships and be unashamed. Well, there's the research that shows you, well, here, out of these six do one of these six things or do a combination of them, and that's that's actually gonna help someone grow in building relationships and grow in being unashamed and being transparent. So it's very helpful when you're thinking about discipleship. Right? And even to the point of this, right? I mean, I mean, this is what I would highly recommend for you to do. The curriculum that you use in your church, right, for uh, whether it's for new believers or, you know, just any, any kind of curriculum that you use to disciple people or to grow people through. I would actually even say, hey, take the eight attributes, right, do a chart like this, and then put the session, right? So session one of this and see what it is and see, okay, session one actually directly relates with this. Well, session two does this. Do you see what I'm talking about? Like you can actually see from a holistic point of view, if this is maturity from a, from a large sampling of people, right? It's like, hey, do, is the material that you are using for your church-wide study, is it heavily like this or is it well-rounded like that? Do you get that? So, I mean, so when I preach, I mean, I'll, the, what we do at our church, like I love verse-by-verse expository preaching but I know how, how effective topical series are. So we'll actually do both. I mean, we're right now in, a first, in, in the summer, we're working through James. We did, then did a topical in the early fall. And right now we're working through First John. Uh, and then in December, we're going to do uh, five hymns. We're you know, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, O Holy Night, you know, some of these hymns. And we're going to actually preach about the theology behind each of the hymns. That we sing. So, I mean, if you don't have your Christmas sermon series planned out, you know, so steal it. I mean, it's, you can use it. It doesn't really matter uh, to me. But I mean, that's so I love. But the reason I love verse by verse preaching, because when we walk through the book of James in the summer, I mean, that's like there were passages I didn't know. I didn't want to preach. But you're, you have to preach it. Because you're like, you can't just skip a verse, right? You're like, hey, we're preaching from James 5, 1 to 11 this week, and next week we're going straight to, you know, we're skipping 10 verses, and we're going straight. I mean, you can't do that if you're doing, you know, verse by verse. So that's why I love it, and it help, it forces me to preach the whole thing. But what I would then encourage you to do, right? I mean, this is curriculum. If you were in charge of preaching, right, I would say take your annual calendar your three months out or six months out calendar and put your sermon series there and see hey is this sermon series from an annual basis are you actually hitting these attributes right it kind of keeps you in line it helps you uh, because otherwise what are we going to do we're just going to you know that's that's the danger of topical like only doing topical because after three years you've preached through everything because you've preached through all your pet peeves right and it's just like well what do i do now well you just start all over again I mean, Scott's going to be a really, I mean, he's the researcher. He's the guy, yeah, the next session. Uh, so, so, yeah, so that's a great question for him. Uh, but, I mean, this is an example of how you can use something like this, right? But what I, what I did want to share with you is, yeah, it's helpful. Yeah, you can do stuff like this. But you're like, hey, Daniel, if you're saying that eight was a lot, you just said that if these are eight output goals that are hard enough to memorize, And you're saying in your book, you now are giving me five input goals per output goal. You're like, you know what eight times five is? And I'm like, it's 40. And I'm like, so you're saying if eight is hard to memorize, 40 is easier. (laughs) Right. And I'm like, yeah, it is a lot. But the the, the benefit, the helpful aspect is there are certain areas here that we are weak at. And the, the having five to six input goals per output goal will help you target. Right. It'll help you target. Okay, but let's let's go really practical, though, Okay, because you can't you still can't memorize 40, let alone eight. So when you go deeper in the research, there's actually a few input goals that will increase all eight of these. Right. And that was the genius of the regression analysis. And that's what I want to share with you here. Okay, so here's the first one Uh, reading your Bible. You know, fireworks go off. You're like, oh, I can't believe that. Reading your Bible, like, develops mature disciples. No, I mean, you know, let me, let me, you're like, I know, you know, drop the mic, right? I mean, it's like reading the Bible actually matures people. Wow, Daniel, you know, give me something better than that. All right? No. Okay. What I, okay. I'm not talking about studying the Bible. Studying the Bible did result in maturity. But I'm not talking about studying the Bible. I'm not talking about memorizing the Bible either. And memorizing the Bible does result in maturity. I'm, Psalm 119, right? I mean, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. right? How can a young man keep his way pure? right? By, by, you know, you know, by living according to your... You know what I'm talking about? So, I mean, yes, we do need to memorize the Scriptures. Yes, we do need to study it. But what came out in the research was those, those were different things. The thing that actually... Increase all eight was the simple act of reading, just reading the Bible, like just reading it, like just opening up the app, and spending ten minutes in the bathroom reading the Bible. Yeah, I mean, I actually said that on Sunday. All right, I was like, hey, you know, I mean, if you're at work and you haven't spent time with God, and it's like, you like it's it's like ten a.m. and you're like going from meeting to meeting, and you gotta go to the bathroom. Like, open up the Bible app. Don't open up Facebook. <laughs> I know it's awkward. We are like, oh, you're talking about the bathroom. This is kind of weird. And I was like, but we all know that you open up Facebook, right? I mean, just open up the Bible. And I mean, just imagine how practical that is, Amen. right? I mean, just think about that for a second. So what the research showed was if you read the Bible on a monthly basis, right, on a monthly basis, The more frequently you, so from a monthly basis person that read the Bible to a daily basis, you know, someone who read the Bible, their total score in the TDA actually rose by 20 points. They're every, so what that's basically saying is the more frequently that an individual reads their Bible, they are more likely to obey God and deny self. Is that true for you? Yeah. I mean, if you're reading the word, I mean, it's true right? Serving God and others, sharing, I mean, you're more likely to share Christ, to exercise faith, to seek God, to build relationships and be unashamed and transparent. Right? So, pardon me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so think about this. So how do you, okay, so that's great, but how do you actually do that in your church? Because I'm sure, I mean, how many of you have Bible reading plans for your congregation or have tried that? Right? Or, you know you, gave, you know, you ordered the daily bread for everyone, right? Or you use this study guide or this to try to encourage congregational reading. And how many times have you tried that and it hasn't worked? Right? And so, so, so how do you actually encourage and motivate and help people grow in their Bible reading frequency? Well, the biggest thing that you can do, and I don't have it all mapped out here, but the principle is you need to normalize it. Right? You need to normalize it. So here are a couple of examples that I'll share with you in ways that we actually, I mean, this is actually one of the biggest ways that preachers uh, make the scriptures inaccessible. Not because they want to, but it's just inadvertently what happens when, you, when preachers do this. Every time a preacher says, oh, you know, um, and I mean, I'm, I've, I'm completely guilty with this. I'm like, I name my you know what my son's name is? His name is Makarios. Like, that's not Korean, right? I mean, I'm I'm Korean. My wife is Chinese. Like, it's not Chinese. Like, anyone Greek? Anyone know Makarios? Blessed. Blessed. yeah. From Matthew 5. When I was in seminary, super geeky, right? I'm like, hey, if I ever have a son, uh, you know, it's the Beatitudes. I'm like, I want to name him Makarios. You know, and I mean, my wife agreed to it. Uh, It was, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I know he's going to have some issues later on, you know, when you go souvenir shopping and he'll never be able to find his name. Uh, Yeah, I get that. But it's, I mean, blessed. I mean, that's like, it was supposed to be his middle name, actually. And I wanted to call him Elijah. Elijah's my favorite uh, Old Testament prophet. My wife wanted to call him Isaiah because that's her favorite Old Testament prophet. But we both agreed, so we couldn't agree on the first name, but we both agreed on the middle name being Makarios. Well, a month before he was born, it was like, we got to figure this out. And ne- neither of us would relent. We're both really stubborn. Uh, so we actually said, well, will we both agree on Macario's? Why don't we make that his first name? And we're like, yeah. So his middle name became Josiah. Like, not Elijah. Not Isaiah. Just Josiah. Like, completely different. Right? But here's the thing. When I was a kid, what did, my, what did the preacher do? He was preaching through scripture, and he's like, well, he was a seminary student. And he said, well, this word in Greek means, you know, aletheia, you know, truth, right? Or, you know, Macari. I mean, this this is what it means in Greek. So in the Greek, have you you ever been guilty of doing this in your preaching? In the Greek, this is what it means, and, and this is why it's so... And I mean, I, as a kid, I, like, looked up to the guy, and I was like, that is incredible, Like, I wish that my English Bible here could tell me what the Greek meant. So I bought an interlinear, and I didn't know how to use that thing. Like, I don't know. You know, I was like, it was just complicated. I was like, oh, yeah, but I know that this is like, this is what it means in Hebrew, or this is what it means in Greek. But it didn't help me. But you see what's happening? What you actually end up doing inadvertently when you say this word in the Greek means this. And yes, it's a... Very valid point when you do that, because you're trying to get into the word, you're trying to explain it, and then you're trying to figure out how to apply it. But what you're actually inadvertently saying is, if you don't know the Greek, you can't actually study the word of God. That's what you're saying to your congregation. You're saying, if you don't know Hebrew, you can't really understand and read the word. Hey, but praise the Lord that in 2017, we have a lot of good English translations, right? A lot of good ones. So what I do is when I'm trying to explain something, and yeah, in my sermon prep, I'll go into the Greek, I'll go into the Hebrew, right? I'll do that. But when I preach it, I'll say, hey, because I, I, I preach out of the Christian Standard Bible and, you know, that's what we use. It's, it's a really good in the middle type of translation. But I'll actually say, hey, uh, it, you know, we're going to dig a little bit deeper in here. And in the English Standard Version, all right, or in the NASB this is how it's translated. And then in the NLT or in the message paraphrase or in this, it says it like this. And I'm like, do you see how it's translated differently? Well, what this is actually getting at is this, right? So I'm still getting to what I wanted to share from the original languages, but I'm now saying, hey, you can do this. Like, you don't need, I mean, yeah, the Greek and Hebrew are great, but praise the Lord for Bible software, Right, because without the Bible software, I'd be a heretic. <laughs> right, and I don't, I don't like translate from this. I mean, I know my seminary professor said you can't if you're not preparing 30 hours for your sermon and translating from the original languages, you're not being faithful to the text. And I'm like, hey, I'm like, I'm a bivocational preacher. I don't have that much time. Right, because I'm preparing my sermons at 8 o'clock at night, Monday night, uh, because I have to work full time during the day. Right, so I'm like, I can't do that. So how do you, so how are you normalizing the scriptures? So that's one way that we actually, you know, make the scriptures inaccessible. You know, it's because we use the original language. So that's one really practical example. Here's another one. Sermon, and I know if you're not a preacher, I'm sorry, uh, but these are just two really apparent, actually, if you, If you're not a preacher, I mean, you can be a Bible, you know, Sunday school teacher, or or even when you're discipling, you discipling someone else. All of these, all of these things are, you know, something that you can actually use in that context as well. All right, so I'd encourage you to do that. But if you're a preacher, here's another thing that I try to do: I try to make sure that one of my illustrations, sermon illustrations, uh, is about what I read in the Word that week. Right? So here's an example. When I was preaching through James, uh, I was personally reading through 1 Samuel 13. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I reading through the, the scriptures, but I was at 1 Samuel 13 on like, I don't know, like Tuesday or Wednesday that week. And when I read 1 Samuel 13, and I'll actually pull it up here, uh, what, and, and it's, I mean, this, this wasn't James, right? 1 Samuel 13, but when I was preparing my sermon on James, what happened, what I discerned, what really popped out to me here in 1 Samuel 13 was just so related and applicable to what we were talking about in James. Because, you know, James talks a lot about pride. James talks a lot, you know, God opposes the but gives grace to the humble and all that stuff, right? So I was I actually shared this, and I read 1 Samuel 13, the first few verses. And I this is actually what I shared with my congregation. I did, I did it longer. I'll try to go really fast because we have 10 minutes left. And, you know, so I read 1 Samuel 13, and I was like, hey, you know, you know, it says basically the Israelites were divided in two camps, right? Saul was leading half of the army and Jonathan was leading the other half, right? And it was like, it was really divided into two. And, and in verse three, you know, Jonathan attacked the Philistines and he won. And I mean, look, listen to this. So then after Jonathan wins, right, Saul blew the ram's horn and said, let the Hebrews hear, right? And all Israel heard the news. Saul and this is what Saul's saying right after blowing the ram's horn he says let everyone hear this Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison okay now I get it if you're like the general a general in the U.S. military and you have like thousands of commanders and troops and you know if one guy wins a skirmish over here I mean yeah sure take the credit you're the general who knows this person right I get that but dude the Israelite army was divided into two there were two commanders like, Saul, so you can't be, I mean, yeah, I get it, you're the king. You could, you, I mean, you did it. I mean, he said he did it, right? But, legi- you know, legitimately, there is no, I mean, why didn't he just say that Jonathan won or that we won? Why did he bring himself out, right? And then the connection I made to the sermon was, how often do we take credit for things that we actually haven't done, right? And I made that sermon illustration, on James, I, I, I drew up the sermon illustration based on what I was reading that week. So what I basically said was, hey, while I was reading the Word of God this week, while I was reading the Bible this one morning, I was reading all throughout 1 Samuel 13, and here's another way. you know, And I couldn't get past verse 5. Usually, and, and this is what I'll do, you know, I'm not saying, hey, if you all want to read the Bible, if you all want to know how to read the Scriptures congregation, then do what I do. Step one, step two. That's not what I'm saying, right? Because that'll kind of go in one ear and out the other. But I said, hey, I just, I was reading and I love reading through chapters of the Bible, but I just couldn't, I couldn't get past verse six. I just stopped at verse five. And I just, I just couldn't. So I just kept on reading it over and over and over again. And then I, I opened up my journal and I started saying, Lord, why is this? And I was like, I I wrote it down. I was like, Lord, why is this so difficult for me to get past? Is it because I see this in my heart? Do you see what I'm doing here? Like I'm teaching the discipline of reading the word and how one one of the ways that I engage with the word without actually saying, hey, this is how you should read the word. Right? And I'm normalizing it. Right? You can do this. I mean, even one time, uh, you know, here's the last example. Uh, It was like, it was it was Wednesday night. No, it was like Tuesday night. Uh, and it was like nine 30 at night. And, um, uh, my wife and I were watching, like we were watching this is us or like designated survivor. We were just one of our shows that we watch. Uh, and one of the things that we do is, I mean, I'm too cheap to go get my shirts pressed. Uh, so I'll just iron like Every two weeks or every three weeks, I'll just grab 10 of them or whatever was, you know, in the, from the dry out of the dryer, and I'll just put on a stack on the couch, and I'll, we'll just watch TV. And, you know, it usually takes me an hour and a half or something just to get through all the shirts. But I'm like, it's okay, whatever. I mean, I'd rather do that uh, than, than pay someone to launder my shirts. Plus, you know, I get to watch some TV. So it's 930. I'm doing that. All right. I'm like three quarters of the way through. I'm actually getting pretty tired by that moment. And then I get a call, and I'm like, who, I, I was like, who calls at 9:30 at night? I was like, I don't, I don't even like receiving calls at 10 a.m. in the morning, like ever. Like, I just, just text me. Right? I was like, I don't want to pick up the phone. Uh, so literally, it was like, it was right there. It was ringing. It was by the kettle. Like I still remember, it was by the kettle, and it started ringing. I was like, I don't, 9:30. Like I don't want to take it. Go to the message. But you ever get that feeling where it's just, like, you gotta do it. So it just, the person wouldn't hang up. So I looked, and I even looked, and I said, I don't want to talk to him. <laughs> but he just kept on ringing. And then I was like, okay, okay, I'll get it. So I picked it up, and he started talking. I started talking, and then, you know, he, he was like, you know, sometimes it's great to meet one-on-one with people, not always in big group. And he was in my life group, and we had done coffee here and there. And then 15 minutes, he rambles on at the end. I'm like, dude, are you, just, are you asking me to disciple you? Is that what you're doing? And he's like, yeah. I was like, great, let's do it. Right, let's do it. This Friday morning, 6 a.m. And he's like, what are we gonna do? And I was like, we're gonna read the word. You're gonna read the scriptures, I'm gonna read the scriptures, and we're gonna talk about it. Right? And do you see, like, do you see what it looks like to just normalize? And those are just three examples, right? And I'm sure that if we were to brainstorm all together, there would be a lot more that we could come up with. But if reading the Bible, just the simple act of reading the Bible increases all eight you know, what does it look like for you to do that in your congregation, All right? So that was the big, I mean, there are a few other of the goals uh, that I articulated in the book, but that I just really wanted to camp for the last 30 minutes on that because that's just one of the, that's like the biggest, the most stark, uh, the, the biggest difference that it actually makes the Bible reading, right? But we have um, four minutes for some questions and I can hang around after a little bit more if you guys want. Any questions? Yep. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Input goals. Sure. Okay. So another one was uh, meeting in a community group, right? So, like a small, and, uh, you know, it could have been any, anywhere from a, so it was not one to one. Not that there's anything wrong with one to one. It's just that that wasn't what was, you know, the result. It was a small to a mid sized group. So the frequency of someone meeting in a group. Now, okay, here's the thing. Um, and, and worship attendance was another one of them, right? The more frequently someone attended a worship service. Now, here's the thing that, and the reason I don't start with that, because you're like, Daniel, come on. Reading the Bible, going to Sunday service, right? Being in a small group, how is that different than the output goal thing? Well, the biggest difference is this. Here's the biggest difference, and you know, we'll, we'll end with this. The biggest difference is that, these things that you are doing, right, you are reading the word, you are choosing to uh, engage in a community group and, and be transparent. You are being in that environment, allowing what happens in that environment to shape you and to grow. You are, you are, you know, you are committing to attend a weekend service, right? And what actually ends up happening is these become and we see this across the board, these become the things that we do to prepare ourselves to sleep, right? These become the things that we do that actually allow, you know, we're placing ourselves in, a, in an environment where the Lord can begin to mature and develop. Because and, here's the thing, you can have someone who's there every single Sunday you know, just, you know, two people who are there every single Sunday and then one person's spiritual growth is going like this because they're seeing the Sunday worship as an opportunity not for them to be fed, but for them to understand, hey, this is me giving worship to the Lord, right? This is me being reminded of my identity in Christ. This is me you know, worshiping with others, bringing them, you know what I'm talking about? And then you can have another person who's there every single Sunday from a consumeristic point of view and they're, you know, they have their notebook and they're like, I need my meat, pastor. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like a completely different posture. And one of them is very much of a, well, it's an output goal posture. And the other one is, is input. It's an input goal. Right? So it's a subtle difference, uh, which is why I never start with that. Because other, otherwise, everything just goes like this, right? So there's that subtle difference in how they interact. Awesome. All right, well, thanks for coming. Hope hope you guys continue uh, through the other sessions. But uh, here's the last thing. If you want to get in touch, uh, daniel at newchurches.com is my personal email. Well, it's my work email, but, you know, I, it's, it's always on me. Uh, Daniel Sangi is my, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, if you guys want to connect. And danielm.com is my website. But we'd love to stay in touch. Anything I can do to help uh, is great. But thanks for coming, guys. You've been
0: listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Make sure to download the sampler of LifeWay researcher Daniel M's new book, No Silver Bullets, for free at discipleship.org slash LifeWay. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.